0: Okay. Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Ryan Olke. And today I'm talking with Ken Wilber. And uh, Ken, thank you so much for being here today. Um, it's been, I think, 10 or 11 years since uh, we last talked.
1: Indeed. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan.
0: Yeah. And so the the topic that we're going to talk about today is a fourth turning of Buddhism. And actually, I just realized it's it's probably perfect timing that it's been 10 years since we last talked, because somehow for me, this topic of a, a fourth turning is even more relevant today not that it wasn't relevant 10 years ago, but it feels very palpably, um, significant and relevant today. So I'm happy to have you on the show. And for, um, for, for those of you who don't know who Ken is, uh, Ken is a philosopher and prolific author who's written 25 books translated into 30 languages. And in particular, his work is focused on his integral theory. Um, but that also of course, includes awakening and meditation and Buddhism. And, uh, including his own experience in his uh, his Buddhist path of awakening. And he's the founder of Integral Institute and co-founder of Integral Life, which, by the way, if you enjoy the conversation today, I highly recommend you check out uh, integrallife.com, where you can hear Ken uh, talk on all kinds of subjects, particularly with our good friend Corey DeVos. Uh, and they do a show once a month called The Ken Show. And there are hours of great conversations over there. So check that out. And uh, one of your most recent books, Ken, is uh, The Religion of Tomorrow, uh, A Vision for the Future of the Great Traditions. And uh, I can't believe I had missed that it had had come out. Um, I don't know how I missed it, but I've gotten, I've been reading through it. and I really love it. Um, And uh, again, like I said, it feels really relevant today. And so to start off, to give people context, I wondered if you might talk about – Briefly, the three turnings of Buddhism, so people are familiar with that if they've forgotten. Um, and then what what a fourth turning might be, what it might look like, just a kind of a sneak preview here as we dive into it more. And to, to note, uh, you chose Buddhism as the main religion to, to focus on in your book because it inherently has an evolutionary unfolding explicit in the tradition the, through the three turnings. So it makes it very easy to consider a fourth turning uh, compared to maybe some other contemplative traditions. So uh, yeah, would you mind giving us a little overview of the three turnings and and what this fourth turning uh, might be looking like?
1: Sure. And in order to do that, because I sort of um, developed these ideas about a fourth turning yeah. uh, in light of, indeed, this um, essential sort of orientation that um, are, I present in, in these various books, and it's often called integral theory or integral meta-theory. Mm-hmm. And what it the, the place of integral came from originally, I mean, I wrote my first book when I was 23, mm-hmm. and it was called The Spectrum of Consciousness. Mm-hmm. And it's just that um, instead of looking at consciousness as just a sort of singular thing,
2: mm-hmm. the
1: idea was that it was much more like a spectrum. It had a lot of different levels or bands or waves or colors or however you wanted to look at it. And the world looked really profoundly different at each or from each one of these different colors or each one of these different levels. And that turns out to be um, just a very, very simplified version of what increasingly became a, a little bit more complex and complex theory. Although I've always tried to keep just the core theory, pared down to just the absolute minimum number of dimensions or areas you absolutely need. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the overall theory itself goes into dozens and dozens and dozens of of others. But there are five fundamental dimensions of reality. And these are simply ones that humanity has discovered over the years, East Mm -hmm. and West, pre-modern, modern modern, and post-modern. And in a sense, each of them has to do with a different type of wholeness, that humans have ways that they can become more and more whole. There are areas that we all have access to, but we do tend to undergo evolution or development. So in virtually all of these areas, as we get into a particular area, we have to kind of go through a little developmental learning process. And that includes, certainly, if we look at um, human cognitive development and the work of people like Piaget to Kurt Fischer, Uh, infant is born in Piaget's system. It starts out, it doesn't have access to reason, doesn't have access to rules or logic or even language. So it just starts out with what P. Jager calls motor intelligence. It takes a couple of years to develop that, and that gives a young child a capacity to understand that there are objects in the world that you can take a toy. If you put it behind a pillow. The toy continues to exist. It doesn't just disappear. That's what the infant thinks at first is that when you can't see the toy, it's just gone. Pretty soon it learns, no, it has something called object constancy. So it'll still be behind the pillow. If you look under the pillow, you can see the toy. All this will happen before the child's really even speaking. And then as language emerges, the child will go through developing images, simple images, and then symbols, and then concepts, and then rules, and then what Piaget called concrete operational thinking, and then into formal operational thinking. And others have carried that on to then more sort of systems kind of thinking. But that's just one example of one intelligence. A lot of psychologists today believe that human beings don't have just one intelligence, but we have perhaps up to a dozen different intelligences. In addition to cognitive intelligence, we have emotional intelligence, we have moral intelligence, we have aesthetic intelligence, we have mathematical intelligence, we have musical intelligence, we have verbal intelligence. And all those are relatively independent. You can be fairly high in some, fairly low in others. Our most Western cultures and Western educational systems really only develop cognitive and verbal, and the other 10 or so intelligences, we just don't educate for it. The SAT test, the score you get in an SAT, is the result of how well you do on just basically cognitive, mathematical dimensions, and then verbal, and that's it. It doesn't test for your emotional intelligence, your spiritual intelligence, your aesthetic intelligence, or any of those. So that there's another, that's a wholeness, that is waiting for us is we have these other potentials and we can awaken to those and we can start to use those. The more of those we use, the more whole, the more fulfilled, the more comprehensive we'll actually feel like we're becoming. And what we've learned is that each of those multiple intelligences have been studied by some major pioneer in developmental studies. So Piaget focused on especially cognitive intelligence. Kohlberg focused on moral intelligence. Claire Grace focused on values, intelligence, and so on. And so if you put all of these models of development together, and in a book called Integral Psychology, I actually do a meta-analysis of over 100 different developmental models looking at all of these different intelligences. And the the evidence for, for this realm is just absolutely overwhelming. There's just an enormous amount of evidence demonstrating the reality of these of these different capacities and these different dimensions. Even though it's not obvious to us, you can't just introspect right now and see all these intelligences running around. So In the back of that book, in uh, psychology, by the way, I have charts of all 100 developmental models. And each uh, chart lists the model and then gives the name of the stages that it's discovered in whatever particular intelligence that it's investigating. Well, this might sound like something that humanity sort of figured out a fairly long time ago. And so we'll find evidence of it in a whole lot of early cultures or civilizations. And as a matter of fact, we don't. These processes, um, which according to just the terms that we use in integral theory, and I'll just be tossing out a couple terms, but I'll always explain them in simple English. But these different multiple intelligences – are examples of what we call lines of development. And um, pretty much all areas that evolve or develop have different lines of development that that, um, are moving through them. And that's certainly the case with our multiple intelligences. But what we've also found is that each of those lines of development as it grows and develops and matures will go through a series of levels of development. And if you put all these lines together and look at the different levels that they have, you can start to see that the levels are essentially similar. So what we have is maybe a dozen different lines growing and progressing and developing, but they're all going through the same levels of development. Now, that was a big, big discovery. And it was only made about a 100 years ago. And it was made by... Um, an American psychologist, a gentleman by the name of James, Mark Baldwin. And he was at um, Harvard around the turn of the century, 1900s. And including being aware of all of our multiple lines of intelligence, or multiple lines of development, it's just a process that we call opening up because you're opening up to a whole lot of other ways Of knowing. And when you do that, you're opening yourself to other aspects of the world, to different perspectives. I mean, it's really a big territory that you're opening up to. And then, as for the levels, we call that the process of growing up. So, including all levels is a process we call growing up, including all lines, process we call opening up. Now, this growing up turns out to be Stunningly important. Um, The problem is that you can't see, again, you can't see any of these levels of growing up by introspecting or looking within or meditating or contemplating or any of that. They're, They're very much more like grammar. So everybody who's brought up in a particular culture ends up speaking that culture's language fairly accurately um, in in most cases. So they put subject and verb together correctly and they use adjectives and adverbs correctly. And in general, they're following the rules of grammar of their language quite accurately. But if you ask any of them, okay, you're following a whole lot of rules of grammar, write down what those rules are. (laughs) Almost nobody can do it. I mean, most people don't even realize that they are following rules of grammar as they divide up, parse, label, and turn their reality. I mean, the rules of grammar, really, you and I are now sharing the rules of grammar for English. Right. And that's determining in large measure how we're actually seeing what we're seeing. Hmm. So, But again, neither you nor know I can look within right now and see the rules of grammar. It's just not gonna happen. Well, all of these stages of growing up are like that. They're like rules of grammar. And each of these different levels or stages of growing up sees the world differently. It has different values. It has different motivations. And this is really one of the staggeringly huge discoveries that humankind has made about its own existence and the world around it. Interestingly, one of James Mark Baldwin's friends in Cambridge at that time was William James. And if people are sort of asked who's America's greatest psychologist, people would, the gen- experts would generally say it's either William James or it's James Mark Baldwin. Mm-hmm. But what's so interesting is that Well, Baldwin was first actually discovering the fact that there were different lines, different multiple intelligences, but they all went through similar levels of development. And Baldwin actually, he looked at four major lines of development. He looked at the development of the good, the true, and the beautiful. So the good is moral development. The true, which is meant objective truth. So that was like scientific truth. So that was like cognitive development. And then the beautiful was aesthetic uh, intelligence, aesthetic development. And then he added one more, which is very interesting, and that was religious development. And this is something that we would um, typically come to call spiritual intelligence. Now, spiritual intelligence is not the same as what the great meditative and contemplative traditions are interested in. Spiritual intelligence is simply, well, I'll do it the other way. What the great meditation traditions are interested in are experiences that are typically called things like enlightenment, awakening. Uh, The New Testament calls it metamorphosis. Sufis call it fauna. It's moksha for Vedanta. Zen Buddhism, of course, it's satori. And it's the essential goal of of the great paths of liberation, the great meditative and contemplative traditions, East and West. Now, that humanity, because those are not like rules of grammar that you can't see by looking within. When you have, we we call that the whole process of enlightenment, awakening, metamorphosis, satori, we call that the process waking up. And so what I'm trying to convey right now is the difference between waking up and growing up.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Because these turn out to be the two most important developmental pathways that human beings have discovered so far. So when James Mark Baldwin was discovering the whole process of growing up. William James was doing things like writing a book, The Variety of Religious Experience. He was studying actual cases of waking up where religion or spirituality wasn't just some sort of um, mythic belief. Like if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you believe Moses really did part the Red Sea and, Lot's wife really was turned into a pillar of salt. And Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ really was born of a biological virgin and all that. Enlightenment, awakening, waking up has nothing to do with that kind of belief structure. So what we're going to see, as particularly as we go on, is that human beings really have two very different types of spiritual engagement. One is that one type of spiritual engagement is moves through the process of growing up. In other words, spiritual intelligence is one of around a dozen multiple intelligences that we all have. And we're all developing, you know, again, more or less we have a very uneven sort of sense of development because we've really only been educated in around two out of 10 of these multiple intelligences. We certainly haven't been educated in spiritual intelligence, but the poisons and spiritual intelligence, like all the other multiple intelligences, goes through these major stages or levels of growing up. And we'll come back and give a few examples of what some of those stages or levels look like. But they're all indeed intelligences. So they're how we think about something. They're how we conceptually frame something. They're how we symbolically understand something. But enlightenment, awakening. Fauna, satori, waking up. That's not about forming a theory about some sort of reality. That universally, instead, it's universally taken to be a direct, immediate awareness or experience of reality. And experience isn't the best word because most typical experience has a beginning in time. It lasts a while. It goes away. Uh, it's divided using into subject and object uh, and so on. And the enlightenment awareness or realization doesn't really have any of those. The cultures that recognize enlightenment and then ordinary reality generally make a distinction between what they call ultimate truth and relative truth. And ultimate truth, is, well, relative truth is something like what science might come up with, for example. So uh, it's relatively true that water molecule consists of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. And and most of the great traditions working with liberation or awakening would say, that's fine. We accept that. that. That's great. But learning about that won't give you an enlightenment experience. It won't show you what's ultimately real. It won't show you what your true self is and what the real nature of reality is. When you have that experience, that's ultimate truth. And so there is this distinction made. Now, relative truth is the realm where we do find multiple intelligences, and we find that they're going through these stages or levels of growing up, and ultimate truth isn't so much an explanation or a description about reality. It's a direct experience of what is at least claimed to be an ultimate reality. And that's what William James was having a look at. And so it's interesting because what we call in terms of levels of growing up, because you can't see those by looking within, because those are much more like rules of grammar. We also call those levels of growing up by the term structures of consciousness. Because structures are sort of third-person patterns. You can't really see them by introspecting. They're governing how you see the world. They're not something you can directly see yourself. But experiences of awakening, of enlightenment, of waking up, those are direct, immediate, first-person experiences. And I'll just keep calling them experiences. Though, as I said, it's not exactly the best term, sure, but yeah. it gives us a distinction between a direct, immediate awareness versus some sort of conceptual or theoretical or symbolic knowing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the traditions are, are, are pretty unanimous on the fact that it's that type of direct, usually non-dual, immediate, timeless awareness that discloses ultimate truth. So these are clearly, um, turn out to be two very, very important developmental pathways that humans have. Now, generally speaking, and you asked about the the three turning points in Buddhism, Mm -hmm. generally speaking, if you, again, look at These structures of consciousness that we find in growing up versus these states of consciousness that we have with waking up. When you have a waking up experience, you know it. I mean, if you are, just to give an exaggerated sort of loopy example, but if you are meditating and all of a sudden you feel like you're one with the entire universe and you're bathed in love and bliss and it's just overwhelming, believe me, you know it. It's a direct, immediate awareness. You can't miss it. It's a first person reality. And because of that, we have these kinds of spiritual experiences, not spiritual intelligence. Spiritual experience is a direct experience of spirit or some sort of ultimate reality or at least higher reality. Spiritual intelligence is what we think about that experience, it's how we explain. That experience. Even if you have one of these direct waking up experiences and, and your mind just goes completely silent temporarily, and you're in a trans transrational state of oneness with absolutely everything that's arising, and you can't even put words on that or labels, it's just an overwhelming sense of radical unity and oneness, and you're just completely swept away by that oceanic uh, immersion. At some point, you'll come out of that non-conceptual awareness and you start to go, whoa, what was that? Or what did that mean? Or what was that all about? Or why did I experience that? Or wow, that's the most real thing I've ever seen in my life. What am I going to do with my life now? How am I going to organize it around that? And these experiences of spiritual experience um, are some of the, earliest types of experience that we have records of in humankind's history so I'm just going to use the term satori uh, as an example of waking up enlightenment, um, fauna, moksha and so on but human beings the first human beings to have uh, experienced of a pretty authentic satori, it's at least several thousand years old and if you count shamanic versions of that that's a long conversation, by the way, but let's <laughs> say definitely we'll, we'll, we'll for, just for this discussion we will count shamanic versions of that. Then experiences of waking up go back 10, 20, 30,000 years, and there really are some of the earliest experiences we have. But what you'll tend to see is that just as growing up evolves through a series of stages or levels or structures of consciousness there tends to be um, particularly in really comprehensive systems of meditation or contemplation like any of these dimensions of wholeness that we were talking about although many it's very common for people particularly people who aren't actually practicing some sort of meditation or contemplation it's relatively common for just an average human being to have some sort of mystical experience in their life, some sort of satori, some sort of experience of a kind of ultimate oneness. Um, recent polls, for example, have showed what these kind of polls have showed for a long time, which is around 60 percent of the population said that they've had some sort of experience of just all of a sudden disappearing and being one with everything in the entire universe. And it lasted, you know, a couple minutes or five minutes or an hour or two. Or for some people, it might have actually lasted a day or so. And then back, their mind tends to come back and then they're thinking about it, trying to figure it out and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we found historically and then they tend not to have another of those kinds of experiences. Some of them do, but um, the 60% is the measure of people that had at least one of those kinds of experiences. Well, if we look at how those experiences, because clearly even the meditation systems, East and West, recognize that in most cases, that type of ultimate reality can unfold in a series of almost sort of stages themselves. And so most of the great meditative contemplative traditions have stages of development of states of consciousness. And so you have St. John on the Cross, you have St. Teresa's Seven Interior Castles, that's seven stages of development. Um, from the lowest ego, bound, isolated, separate self sense, through subtler and subtler um, types of awareness, to an ultimate unity awareness, a truly enlightened, awakened state. You find the Ten Zen Oxfording pictures, um, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, um, eight major limbs to that, original uh, Gautama Buddha and his eight uh, eightfold path. In in many cases, both East and West, the first kind of sort of major, really profound spiritual experience was indeed, and we can just use Plato's uh, analogy, because he was exactly somebody that had this kind of experience that I'm about to describe. And that is, according to Plato, of course, the average person is sitting in a cave. And in, in a way that they can't turn around. And so all they're watching is shadows being thrown on the back of the cave by the real light outside the cave. And the whole point for Plato was to let go of all those shadows and awaken to that light. And this is a type of awakening, a type of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But for most of those early versions, including the earliest versions of yoga, certainly including... Gautama Buddha's original, uh, what we would typically today call Theravada Buddhism, what Mahayana rather derogatorily called Hinayana, small path, as opposed to Mahayana, big path, um, and a lot of the early Western mystical traditions. The experience is one of literally just getting off, out of the entire manifest realm, in other words there really is a samsara and there is a nirvana and samsara is the whole realm of the manifest visible objective universe those are all shadows in the cave that's what we're supposed to get off of nirvana is this this will have to be done metaphorically because again these technically you can't really describe these perfectly um but it it was an experience of just um a uh, infinitely vast, unmanifest realm. And so it's not any object that you can see. It's nothing arising that you can feel or think or touch. It's just a vast, infinite spaciousness with no objects, no concepts, no ideas at all. That was the realm of nirvana. And in its actual form, it was often called nirode, which technically actually means cessation. So there was just a cessation of all mental concepts and ideas, cessation of all sensory objects and sensations and perceptions, and just a pure, vast, infinite nothingness, so to speak. Analogies of that are sometimes given as being similar to, like, deep, dreamless sleep. So in that, there's a very subtle awareness but there's no ego, there's no desire, there's no suffering. There's no pain. That's a very real state that you can get into. That's a state of consciousness. You know it when you're in it. We saw examples, shocking examples of that state um, during the Vietnam War, where monks who were protesting the war would get into a lotus position, get into this state of nerode, a pure cessation, but there's no pain, no suffering, nothing. They had their bodies doused in gasoline and set on fire. And every one of them burned to the ground in ashes and not one of them flinched. Nirvana is a real state. It's not just Moses part of the Red Sea or any of that kind of stuff. This is an entirely different type of spiritual engagement because this is indeed a being plunged into a, something like an ultimate reality. Whereas Moses, part of the Red Sea, it's just coming from, that's just a relative thought or idea. And it's coming from a stage in growing up. It's not actually waking up. So these are two, again, very different things. And, and later when we go through just a few of the stages of growing up, I think you'll see what that means in particular. Well, for about, it varies for about six to 800 years, That was a very common form of spirituality, both east and west. And then in Buddhism, we get the emergence of this absolute genius by the name of Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna says, in effect, I'm not saying nirvana isn't real. You you can definitely get into that nirvana, that nerode, that cessation state. And then samsara is gone. It's just not arising. It's not there. It won't hurt you. You have no suffering, no pain. You're in nirvana. He said, so that's a real state, but it's not the ultimate state. It's not the deepest state you can get into. According to Nagarjuna, you can actually get into that state of pure emptiness or pure cessation or Pure Nirvana, and while being in contact with that, you can let the whole world of Samsara arise in your awareness. And when that happens, there's no separation between Nirvana and Samsara. You're getting both of those, but now the deeper unity that both of those are expressions of, and that deeper unity is something that he would simply. I'm giving just a very, very gross simplification. But that was what he referred to as non-dual. Nirvana and samsara are not two. So as the Heart Sutra would famously put it, that which is emptiness is not other than form. That which is form is not other than emptiness. So in other words, that which is nirvana is not other than samsara. That which is samsara is not other than nirvana. Well, this was a stunning change. Because now, all of a sudden, the spiritual ideal is not to just be the erha, the solitary realizer, who goes off in a cave, gets into nirvana, and just basically spends his or her time in that formless realm. Now, the spiritual ideal is a bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva is somebody who actually practices, it's often worded by saying things like, well, bodhisattva vow is I pledge not to get enlightened until all sentient beings are enlightened. But that's not actually very accurate. Um as Carla Rinpoche used to say, um the bodhisattva vow isn't to put off enlightenment until everybody gets enlightenment. Because <laughs> if you're putting off enlightenment, how will you know how to help anybody? <laughs> and bodhisattva thou is a problem. Get enlightenment as fast as you can in order to be able to help all sentient beings. The real point about the Bodhisattva vow, however, is it's a vow not to enter cessation. It's a vow not to enter just nirvana and to get off of samsara. It's a vow to stay in that deeper non dual unity. And so then you have access and are aware of and are ultimately one with, all these sentient beings that aren't yet enlightened. And so your job now is to help all of those sentient beings get enlightenment because they're suffering. They don't know that they're in this state of non-dual unity that is profoundly beyond suffering because it's beyond separation and isolation and duality. So that became, in essence, I mean, pretty much every major Mahayana and Vajrayana school in Buddhism, traces its lineage to um, Nagarjuna. And that indeed became um, the essential ground of Mahayana Buddhism. And that continued um, to unfold. And it really was a sort of deeper unity. Um, It was a larger type of wholeness that humans had discovered. Then you get um, several centuries later, as human beings' aspiration of this realm continued, then you did tend to get what was generally called a third turn, And this was, this is a little bit more difficult to describe because almost all of the, well, and, and often this third wheel was called Vajrayana, although technically that's still considered a subset of Mahayana, but we recognize Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Um, and Vajrayana, first of all, almost every major theorist in Vajrayana said, first of all, I accept everything Nagarjuna said. I, I, it's, he's absolutely right. And Nagarjuna's point by the way, is that there is this ultimate truth and there is relative truth. And human beings essentially have at least two modes of knowing. One mode of knowing gives you relative truth. The other mode of knowing gives you ultimate truth. And you can't just use relative mind and think about the ultimate. That won't do it you have to actually engage practices that will awaken that second mode of awareness. And so that first mode was just often referred to as just conceptual thinking or dristi, um, vikalpa or dualistic thought processes. And then this, this new mode, this other mode that you were supposed to awaken, which would give you ultimate truth. That was Nagarjuna usually called it prajna, p r a. J N A and J N A in English is G N O so uh, the word gnosis for example G N O S I S or even it's even K N O as in just knowledge K N O W L E D G E and then P R A is pro so this form of awareness is pro Gnosis. It was a non-dual unifying awareness and one of Nagarjuna's main demonstrations was that anything you do with relative thinking won't get you to Prajna. And so he even developed the dialectic which is very very sophisticated and essentially what it does is it says okay you want to describe this ultimate truth. You think you can describe this ultimate truth using your relative mind. So go ahead and pick X and let X be. And I'm just summarizing mm-hmm. what he did using in this fashion. He didn't actually do it this way. Um, but X could be whatever you think ultimate reality is. So X could be God, or it could be the good, or the true, or the beautiful. It could be Sat Chit Ananda. Uh, whatever you want it to be, just let pick your X and, you know, whatever you say that is. And then Nagarjuna demonstrated that ultimate reality is neither X, nor not X, nor both, nor neither. Well, that doesn't leave you much room, does it? I mean, it's so a way you just radically undercut relative conceptual dualistic thinking. Because it can't even get close enough to get something wrong. I mean, it not yeah. in Virginia, dualistic thought would have to improve dramatically just to get up to being wrong. It's just radically incapable of giving us this enlightened, awakened awareness. Prajna. And so that kind of puts a bit of a kibosh on trying to come up with any descriptive terms it's going to apply to, quote, Buddha nature. And this is where Varshayana sort of pushes out a little farther. And in essence, it's saying, well, okay, for, again, we, we agree with all of that. And I mean, technically, that what Nagarjuna says is absolutely right. And what we are trying to do is saying we're trying to awaken this pure, non-dual awareness. And, but we do want to point out, that this awareness that is awakened, because it really is non-dual, it really is nirvana and samsara united, then that awareness is present in our everyday ordinary awareness, Mm -hmm. because it's not dual with all of this that's arising. And so you can, if you're careful, you can sort of speak of this of Buddha nature, this ultimate truth, as being a wisdom awareness or wisdom mind, not the conventional mind, but just wisdom mind. But all of wisdom mind is fully present at every point of relative reality. So Zen would be able to say something like the ordinary mind, just that is the data. So what but what Vajrayana, the third turning, was also doing was it wasn't just coming up with um, an elaboration on this non-dual ultimate reality. It was also filling in a lot of the types of states of consciousness that tended to get left out, Hmm. certainly in Theravada and in most of Mahayana. And this included, for example, things like subtle energy, things like Kundalini or Mahashakti. In Zen Buddhism, for example, you can study that all you want, and you'll never get any indication of what subtle energy currents are, let alone where the chakras are that are said to be houses or wheels containing these sorts of subtle energies. And those subtle energies stretch the whole spectrum from the lowest samsara to the highest nirvana. And what's more, that's an energy current that, because mind, it's an energy current of the body, so to speak. Oh, there's a gross body, a subtle body, a causal body. But each of those go with a a type of awareness. So a gross awareness, a subtle awareness, a causal awareness, and an ultimate vajra awareness. And so you can actually ride these energy currents from your ignorant, deluded, egoic state to your non-dual awakened unity state. And because some of the lower aspects of that subtle energy run right to the root of the spine and right into the genital area, and then the upper reaches of the top of the spine run out the top of the head and then back into an infinite, empty luminosity. Well, this also meant that whereas in many of the earlier forms of spirituality, east and west, the flesh is really split from spirit. because flesh is samsar, flesh is shadows in the cave, and so spirit has nothing to do with sex. Well, yeah, in this new broader conception, the is a bigger wholeness. Sex is not only an obstacle to spirit, sex is now a pathway to spirit. And so much of Vajrayana would contain, or in some cases give way to what was called Tantra schools. And the whole, but some of Tantra was indeed quite degenerate. Some of it was very, very profound, and certainly some of the very best of, of tantric um, traditions would be considered. Um, best of Vajrayana traditions would be considered tantric, and there was indeed. Um, it was even common for the Buddha of ultimate reality to be shown in a, a yabyum, in a male and female, um, both seated in lotus position, but. Um, having sex basically making love and that was a very very good symbol or image of this ultimate non-dual state that really represented the unity of nirvana and samsara of emptiness and form of purusha and mahamaya or Prakriti. so what we're seeing with these three turnings is a continual addition of more and more aspects of reality that can be illumined with an enlightenment or awakening. All of them are real. All of them are actually getting you to a very, very important point. But those keep getting just a bit deeper and a bit deeper mm-hmm. and a bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things, so the question is, well, what would a fourth turning look right, like? Right. And so, without in any way trying to speak for you know all of Buddhism or anything like that, by, by talking about a fourth turning, or what I also refer to as an integral Buddhism, is the idea simply that humanity keeps learning, if not about nirvana, it definitely keeps learning about samsara. I mean, what we've learned in the relative realm of just science, for example, mm-hmm. it's stunning. And most forms of modern science weren't even invented. Um, China, of course, had a very sophisticated sort of original um, form of science. But real modern science, this massively effective science, really didn't come into being until around 1600s in in Europe with the initial stages of, of the Enlightenment. And 1600 was much too recent to be included in virtually any of the great meditative systems east or west. And certainly what was too recent was the discovery of these growing up stages that only happened about 100 years ago. That was way too recent to be found in any spiritual system anywhere in the world. And as a matter of fact, there's not a single religion, there's not a single spiritual system, not a single system of meditation or contemplation anywhere in the world that has an understanding of the stages of growing up. That turns out to be a little bit of a disaster because what we find is that indeed you can have these spiritual experiences and as we said they in many cases they can just be completely non-conceptual the mind itself can just completely cease functioning in a sense but when it comes back we take up the mind and that means we're activating one or two or four or all of our multiple intelligences is our multiple intelligences Are going to start explaining what this was and come up with philosophies about it and then really refine the types of meditation steps that we have to take in order to get to these states. So, even Gautama Buddha, he's let me just briefly give one example of um, some of the names. Sure of these growing up stages and let me emphasize at the start as i said sort of each there's sort of a major pioneer of each of the dozen or so multiple intelligences that we have and because those multiple intelligences are indeed all different they're different lines then the names that were given to the levels as they showed up in a particular line Those names are all different for each lot, So there are dozens and dozens of different names for these levels of growing up. And if I use a few and they don't sound right to you or you don't like them, don't worry. There are lots of other names that could be used and almost certainly you would be comfortable with some of them. But I'm gonna give just one example right now. And that's a a genius by the name of Gene Gebser Um, was one of the major pioneers in examining these levels of developmental growing up. And the terms he used for these major levels, and I'm going to tweak them just a little bit, but they were basically the archaic stage, to the magic stage, to the mythic stage, to the rational, to the pluralistic, relativistic, to the integrated or integral stage. Now, so if you look at archaic to magic to mythic, that mythic stage, well, in, in spiritual intelligence, a gentleman by the name of James Fowler actually investigated the stages of spiritual intelligence that human beings go through. And, and this spiritual intelligence is the intelligence you use every time you try to think of what you believe to be an ultimate reality or ultimate truth. Are what Paul Tilly called ultimate concern. And every human being has some sort of notion of ultimate concern, whether they think they're being spiritual or not. Your ultimate concern is you just make a list of all the things that you consider to be the most important of the most important things in your life. Just make a list of them. The top of that list is your ultimate concern. In other words, that's your version of God in this realm, whether you think of it that way or not. That's the way these theological scholars would define spirit in this relative realm. Now notice, that's different from actually having a waking up experience. So that's why, again, we're just seeing that there are these important differences between waking up and growing up. Now here's what's interesting. Most of the world's great religions Well, every world religion, to some degree, has a degree of waking up. They have some sort of state that they help people get into. And then they have some interpretation of that state. And that interpretation is done by their intelligence. That means it's done by whatever stage of growing up they're at. So this is a very important understanding. And that's that growing up interprets Waking up. So, what you find with most of the religions that are at least two or three thousand years old is that they were written when humanity itself was, in a sense, from the between the magic and mythic stages of development and had not yet really reached the rational stages of development. So, the stage that Gebser called mythic. James Fowler actually called mythic literal, because that's what people at that stage do. So it's at that stage that you will absolutely think that Moses parted the Red Sea, and Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt, and on and on and on. That was the form of spiritual intelligence during those mythic stages of of development. And one of the problems with those is that Those mythic stages are still ethnocentric. In other words, they don't include all human beings. They just include the believers and their special group or their special tribe or their one and only correct religion or whatever it might be. So the early Israelites, for example, that were 12 different tribes brought together into one super tribe because they all agreed to believe in this mythic literal being called Yahweh, which is not to say some of them didn't also have waking up experiences. They did, but they they explained it using their spiritual intelligence and in growing up. And if you were at that stage of development, then you're identified with your special group. It's an ethnocentric stage of development. And so it wasn't until the emergence of the rational stage on a fairly widespread way. Earlier individuals in our history had developed rationality. I mean, people like Aristotle and so on. But it only became a significant center of gravity in culture, again, with the Western enlightenment. And because it was much more rational in its cognition. Cognition than it was mythic. Then it also produced the major modern sciences: modern chemistry, modern physics, modern biology. All of these started to emerge during that period. We refer to that as modernity, versus the early, tra- earlier traditional mythic uh, civilizations. And another important difference we see is that even though virtually all of the great Traditions, the great original meditative and contemplative paths of waking up, those almost all of them came into existence at the same time that, um, where, where waking up was first starting to have these Satori experiences, the interpretive modes were largely mythic literal. So Most of the original cultures, even if they had waking up, their stage of growing up was mythic or ethnocentric. Ethnocentric stages don't object to slavery. And that's why there was no major objection to slavery, even in the cultures that had waking up practices. So at Thomas Sowell, Brilliant um, African American um, economist, philosopher, historian, did a study of slavery. And as he put it, quote, Buddhist monasteries had slaves, Christian monasteries had slaves. St. Paul recommends to slaves that you, quote, obey your master and love Jesus Christ. Hmm. Slavery wasn't actually ended until the emergence of this modern, rational, world centric type of stage of development Hmm. and then in about a 100 year period from around 1770 to 1870 slavery was outlawed in every major rational industrial country on the face of the planet first time anything like that had happened Hmm. so if you're a fundamentalist christian for example and you have these really strong mythic literal belief you believe the Bible is completely, 100% the word of God. It's It can't err. It's historically and empirically true. And that's just a mythic literal view of the Bible. People like that can still have waking up experiences. It's notorious. And what they'll do is, and even in that waking up experience, they'll feel one with everything. They'll feel one with everybody. They're one with the entire universe. But then if they come out of that, if they really are a fundamentalist Christian, they'll think that only the only people who can have that kind of experience are people that have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior. If you do that, then you'll get this reborn experience. You'll be able to have this kind of experience. And if you don't do that, well, you might think you're having that kind of experience. You know, a Buddhist might think they're having a waking up experience, but they're not. They're deluded, and it's actually demonic. So, it This is why it becomes really, really important because we found over and over and over again a couple of things. One, waking up really does give an ultimate kind of truth, an ultimate kind of reality. It really does disclose something like a ground of all being. Two, growing yeah. up will interpret that waking up. Three, none of the traditions of waking up know anything about growing up. None of them, there are none of these stages of growing up development that I've described briefly are found in any of the world's meditative, contemplative, or even great religious traditions. It's just unheard of. Again, those weren't discovered, until James Mark Baldwin, about 100 years ago. So that's one of the things. If you want to say, okay, we're at a third turning.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We've gone from states of consciousness that were just turia, or formless absorption, or cessation, nirvana, to states that are non-dual and are starting to get into Turiyatita, beyond Turiya and into a non-dual unity of nirvana and samsara, and then even into a state where we're starting to see that that ultimate ground of being is so massively ever-present that it's also going to just be drenching your own ordinary conventional reality 24-7. You're just drenched in this ground of all being, in this wisdom, Awareness, and all you have to do is is awaken to that. So the question would be, those are all extraordinarily important evolutionary, so to speak, unfoldings. Mm-hmm. So the question is, well, why should we stop? I mean, do we really think this is stuff that's all unfold in the last few thousand years? Do we really think that we won't nothing will change? Let's say a thousand years from now. Is it still just these three turnings and all of a sudden humanity stopped turning? Or will it continue to push into other areas of wholeness? My suggestion, particularly because it's so important, not only that we have an enlightenment, but that we interpret it from the broadest, most integrated, most comprehensive ways possible. And that means that we ourselves not only wake up, but we reach some of the highest stages of growing up that we can, Mm. and there are practices to do both. Mm. So why on earth wouldn't you do both? Why would you go out and try to get an enlightenment that, well, I mean, not only did enlightenment, not get rid of Mm. slavery, when enlightenment was first happening, people, two, three, four thousand years ago, you could be out walking through the woods, you're meditating, you're you notice the sun is, you know, going around overhead, you notice the earth under you, and maybe you're walking through the woods, and all of a sudden, pow, you have a Satori. Now you're one with everything. You're one with the sun, you're one with the earth, you're one with the woods, but you still think the sun is going around the earth. You still think the earth is flat. And when you look at all the trees in the woods, that doesn't show you anything about the atoms or molecules or cells or tissues that are actually in each of those trees. Satori doesn't do any of that. Satori won't even correct the fact that the earth is flat. Hmm. So, why on earth would yeah. you probably want to work for something that only did that? So if we're going to have an increase in wholeness beyond this third turning, if we were going to have a fourth turning, and by the way, at some point there will be a fourth turning. So go ahead and start picking whatever you want. But my suggestion is at least an important part of that would be let's include growing up along with waking up because it's only as you really get in To these integral or integral stages of growing up, that you actually start to take very, very comprehensive views of not only reality, but your own um, interiors, your own highest self-sense. You can only discover that through waking up. But the best, fullest interpretation you can give it is from an integral stage of growing up. So that would clearly, in my opinion, be an extremely important thing that we need to include. And I'll just mention one other item very quickly, and and then we can knock it around uh, however you might like. Yeah. One of the other things that was discovered only about 100 years ago, and therefore doesn't really appear in any major spiritual tradition anywhere, is the discovery of the dynamically repressed unconscious. And in the West, this is usually associated with the names of people like Sigmund Freud. Freud's inner circle included Carl Jung, Alfred Adler, Otto Rock, and so on, And what these people found was they weren't just looking at defiled emotions or negative emotions. Most of the spiritual traditions, particularly the meditative traditions, have some concept of defiled emotions or negative emotions. And if you're working with something like Theravada, then you're going to try to, uh, in a sense, exterminate them, get, get rid of them. If you're working with something like Vajrayana, you're going to transmute them. You're going to find the transcendental wisdom at the core of each of those defiled emotions and just instantly transmute them into the corresponding wisdom. But what these guys were talking about was what would often be called shadow material. And this is material that isn't just a negative emotion or a defiled emotion. This is an emotion that, for various reasons the conscious mind finds so objectionable that it actually represses it. It pushes them out of awareness, and so it becomes unconscious shadow material, and in becoming unconscious, the amount of trouble and disaster that these emotions can cause increases astronomically. Mm. So. And you can only get at those, again, they're, in a sense, they're sort of like grammar rules of growing up. You can't see those by looking within. They, even if you do an intensive meditation um, course uh, you know, to, to complete enlightenment, you're not going to see any of those levels of growing up or any grammar rules for that matter. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing happens when the shadow is made unconscious. It's, you can't, you also, you can't see that by looking within. And that's the whole point of having an unconscious shadow. You're not aware of it, no matter what you do. Now, some meditation practices will loosen inadvertently, loosen up some shadow material, but they don't get it all of it. And we just saw example after example of this as teachers started to come uh, to the West from the East. Um, if they were from Japan, for example. There were pretty strict rules governing their behavior and their morals in that country. And then they landed in Los Angeles, where there were no, no moral rules at all. Right. And well over half of the incoming teachers ended up in some sort of trouble, often because of psychosexual shadow issues. And that is a problem. So we call this whole area of addressing shadow material, we call that cleaning up.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So what a fourth turning would look like, in my opinion, the things that I think should be included, if we're really going to get out of these waking up traditions, the full potential of those traditions, is we have to add growing up and we have to add cleaning up. Mm -hmm. Those aren't being done now. And so those factors are still in the background. And even with an enlightened awareness, we don't see those factors. And so they continue to have an enormous impact on even people that have had profound waking up experiences. And so that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Historically, it didn't, for example, get rid of slavery. It didn't um, tell us all the things to know about shadow elements. In their earliest versions, it couldn't even tell us the earth wasn't flat. Mm-hmm. So that's the direction we want to go. And I'm still maintaining, um, as I said from the start, that waking up does indeed give us an awareness of this ultimate ground of all being. I think the evidence for that is overwhelming. And I would even point to somebody like Jordan Peterson. A lot of people know Jordan Peterson from the, met, Um, he's sort of an internet superstar, taught Mm -hmm. clinical psychology at Harvard and then University of Toronto. And he gave a talk saying that there were, uh, human beings had at least two major types of consciousness. One was limited, narrow, what's often called egoic conventional consciousness. And one is what he, called himself absolute consciousness and he said this is an oceanic dissolution of the separate self and a oneness with the entire universe so that's clearly a waking up or enlightenment state and then he says the existence of both of these types of consciousness is quote not disputable and he's right waking up isn't just a delusion of. Um, 30 years ago, in psychiatric manuals, if you reported a state of ultimate unity consciousness, you were considered psychotic, and you could, if you were really insistent about it, you could be locked up. Well, we know that's not true. And it's not only that that's not true, it's not even true that it's delusional. It's as Jordan Peterson said, it's not disputable. It's simply not disputable. So the thing is, okay, that gives us nirvana. What have we learned about samsara? Well, medicine, chemistry, physics, biology, right, 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 growing up and cleaning up. That's what we've learned about the relative realm. And when you were just ignoring the entire relative realm, when you were just trying to get off of samsara, you didn't give a rat's ass about any of that. You just get into the road. You get into deep dream of sleep. That's it. You're not suffering. You're not in pain. You're free. But then Nagarjuna comes along, spoils it all. And Nagarjuna is telling us that that which is nirvana is not other than samsara. That which is samsara is not other than nirvana. So that's like a big oops. That and ultimate truth is not other than relative truth. Relative truth is not other than ultimate truth. That means we have to start paying attention to relative truth. Mm -hmm. and That's the direction. That's even what Varshyana in a sense, started to do when it was pointing out that absolute consciousness, ultimate mind, wisdom mind, is one with everyday ordinary mind. So that can, we can keep going in that direction. Mm. And one of the best ways to do that is to take into account the stages of growing up. They apply to every multiple intelligence we have. And these stages of growing up are how we interpret every experience we have and that includes spiritual experience. So we don't just want to have a satori and completely wake up. We also want to interpret that satori from the highest stage of growing up that we have available to us right now and in today's world this has unfolded over our history. It started out at the bottom, which is archaic, but then it's gone through magic into mythic, into rational, into mythic was traditional values, rational or modern values, pluralistic, relativistic were post-modern values, and the highest stages we're aware of and growing up are generally referred to as integrated or integral stages. And mm. sociologists in the know say, we're now actually coming into an integral age not just the traditional age, not just the modern age, not just the postmodern age, but an integral age that's coming from these higher stages of growing up. So it's important to wake up, it's important to grow up as much as we can, and it's important to clean up. Many, many people get on a spiritual path because of shadow issues. None of us escapes our childhood without some degree of shadow. It's just not possible. So the question is how much and just how badly is it going to screw up our life? Because it can't be fixed with waking up and it can't be fixed with growing up. Shadow stuff is shadow stuff. You have to address it with cleaning up. And those are specific psychotherapeutic techniques that have been Fairly well worked out over the last 100 years or so. So overall, that would start to give us a spiritual practice that would show us not only this ultimate truth and ultimate reality, but it would allow us to make that a truly unified, a truly non-dual reality by not just getting in touch with emptiness, but getting in touch with relative form and all the different ways that form can be healthy or unhealthy, relatively mature or extremely immature, relatively grown up or completely not grown up. And is it shot through with shadow elements? It's really distorting how we even interpret our ultimate truth. So these are real issues and humanity has continued to learn about them. And I don't see any reason that our great spiritual traditions shouldn't involve in that learning as well. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community,
0: And join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered. You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.